People of God, will you join me as we go to our Father in prayer? Father, I'm struck by the beautiful testimony of faith as the choir just sang to us from Job 19. Job is still suffering from the death of his children, from the loss of his livestock and income, provision for his family, from the loss even of his own health. In that same chapter, as he cries out to you in the midst of his suffering, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words as he responds to his friends who are tormenting him, as he responds to you in his suffering, as he cries out, have mercy on me. And then in the same breath says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Father, though our heart, like Job's, faints within us, would we yet cry out, I know my Redeemer lives. And though this life passes away, we know we will see our God in the flesh. Oh, Lord, we believe, would you help our unbelief? Whatever burdens we're bringing to you this morning on our hearts, Father, grant us such faith that we might have the audacity to still believe though the mountains crumble around us, though the world fall apart, though even our own flesh or mind or body fails. Would we yet trust in our living Redeemer? We pray, God, for such faith. We pray, God, for such faith from, for those who are, who are hurting this morning. We pray, God, for uh, Phil Dunn, as we learned this week, was admitted to the hospital in Indianapolis after being sick for three weeks. And they're still looking for answers for this fever. They're still looking for direction. We're praying, Lord, for healing. We're praying, God, for your mercy. And we're praying, God, in the midst of this for Phil and for Beth, that you would strengthen their faith, even here, though their heart and their flesh fail. Would they yet trust in you, O Lord? So we pray for Tiffany Hollihan and for Jim Whitturn, both being treated now for cancer. We pray, God, for your mercy. We pray, God, as, you know, that, that big C diagnosis that shatters our world. And as their heart fails, as their body wrestles with treatment and medication, God, would they yet proclaim, I believe, help my unbelief, I know that my Redeemer lives. Would you grant them faith even in the midst of these really hard circumstances? And God, we do know that you are good to your people. And we have seen you answer our prayers. We have seen you grant healings in our bodies, restoration in our relationships. And you grant us your good gifts. And so we give thanks to you for your goodness to us. 
In particular, this morning, we're giving thanks to you for the birth of Eleanor Claire Silver, born to Kristen and Daniel Silver, and with them to their grandparents, especially Kevin and Sharon. We give thanks to you, God, for safe delivery. We give thanks to you for health, and we pray for little Eleanor that she would never know a day that she did not embrace you as her Savior. Yes, Lord, that she would know her sin. Yes, Lord, that she would know her need for a Savior, but never a day that she did not cling to Jesus as her Savior from that sin. We pray, God, for Kristen and Daniel as they adjust to Eleanor with them, that you would equip them, God. Pray for Kevin and Sharon as their heart delights. Would you grant them wisdom and grace as, as they help shepherd this family? And Father, we give thanks to you for all of your goodness. And before we turn to your word, we continue to remember the conflict in Ukraine. I was reading in Psalm 46 this week, this reminder, God, that the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, but when you utter your voice, the earth melts that you make wars cease to the end of the earth, that you break the bow, that you shatter the spear, that you burn the chariots with fire. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bring an end to this conflict in Ukraine, that you would bring peace there, as well as to all places in the world where such conflicts rage. And then would you help these so affected as they rebuild their lives and their country? Grant your grace, spread your gospel, proclaim your word. Would you do that this morning, even now to our hearts, as we look now to your word? Wherever we need to hear from you, would you grant us faith, O God? For all these things we give to you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, would you please turn with me in your copy of God's word to John chapter 20, John chapter 20. I'm going to be reading for us beginning at verse 24 to the end of the chapter, verse 31. If you're using the Black Pew Bible there in front of you or underneath you, if you're in the front or back rows, this is on page 907, 907. It's also on the screen here uh, behind me. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24, page 907. When you get there, uh, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? At home too, if you're able, would you please stand with us? For the reading of God's Word, John chapter 20, beginning of verse 24, page 907, this is the Word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and give thanks to Him now for it. Indeed, Father, we give thanks to You for Your word And we ask now by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand. Cause us, Father, here in your word to know you more, that we might love you better and so love like you love. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? Well, as you can see, our text this morning is about belief. In fact, the, the text, uh, as you, if you were reading the text here in Greek, you can see it in the English too, the text uses some form of the Greek word for belief four different times. So you walk through the text with me, verse 25, Thomas says he will never believe. There's the first one. Verse 27, Jesus tells Thomas to stop not believing, a single word uh, in Greek. That's the second time. And then he says, instead, believe. There's the third time. Finally, in verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe. Our text is about belief. And that is actually the main point of this book that the Apostle John's writing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Verses 30 and 31, the end of our text this morning. This is the the purpose statement, right? The main point of the Apostle John's book. He says, I'm writing so that you may believe. And so, of course, this is, uh, it's a call to believe if you don't believe, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you don't trust Jesus yet for your life, for your hope, for your salvation. This, of course, is a call to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's a call to believe. But it's not just for those who don't yet have faith. The call here is also to those who already have faith. It's a call to those who already believe. It's a call to keep believing. It's a call to press on in believing. It's a call, don't give up believing. It's a call to believe even to those of us who already do believe in Jesus. Because the the truth is, we all battle doubt at some point in our lives. When we come to this text, if you grew up in the church or if you're familiar with the story at all, we call this apostle. What do we call this apostle in the text? Doubting Thomas. And if we're honest, we do it with a little bit of condescension, don't we? A little bit of looking down on Thomas. But I think if we're honest, we all struggle with doubt from time to time. Isn't that true? We all doubt Sometimes sometimes we, we even have the big doubts, right? Is God real? Is he even there at all? Is, is all of this Jesus business worth it? And sometimes doubt shows up in our everyday struggles to believe. Will God answer me when I call to him? Does God really care about me? Is God really good? Is he good to me? Will God really help me through this really hard thing that I'm going through? Eventually, all of us will encounter doubt in some form in our lives. And so this text in front of us this morning, it's a call to believe and a call to keep believing. 
But believe what exactly? One of the things that was fresh for me this week in this sometimes familiar text was this. Thomas was doubting the testimony of the disciples. You're like, well, duh, Chris, that was pretty obvious. Well, maybe, but for me, this was new in this sense. Thomas wasn't doubting Jesus, per se. He was doubting the witness and testimony about Jesus from the disciples. What that means, then, is this, this call to believe. It's a call specifically to believe the apostolic witness. It's a call to believe the the testimony and the witness of the apostles. It's a call to believe the Word of God. And in our text in particular this morning, it's a call to believe the written testimony about Jesus Christ. That written testimony from the, from the apostles that forms our Bibles. This is a call to believe what the apostles wrote about Jesus Christ. And what did they write about Jesus Christ? Well, in our text this morning, the apostle John is a witness to Jesus as Christ, as King, and as God. That's part of the apostolic witness, part of the testimony that the disciples give to us about Jesus Christ, particularly in this text. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is King. Jesus is God. Let's look at these three closer this morning. We begin with Jesus as Christ. So the Apostle John says the reason that he writes this book about the life and ministry of Jesus is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. Now, this word Christ is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. And interestingly, the Apostle John, he's the only New Testament writer to use the word Messiah, and he does so in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus is calling the disciples to follow him, and after Jesus calls Andrew, Andrew goes and calls his brother Simon, who will later change his name to Peter. And Andrew says this when he comes to Simon. He says, we have found the Messiah. That's the place where this Hebrew word is used. And immediately, the apostle John translates that for non-Hebrew readers. He says, by the way, Messiah means Christ. So what is Messiah? What is Christ. Well, in Hebrew, the word Messiah simply means anointed one, somebody set apart by God for a specific work. In the Old Testament, these anointings would include all kinds of peoples. Kings would be anointed. The high priest would be anointed. Prophets would be anointed. People would be anointed for specific work on behalf of God. This word Messiah, it was also used sometimes of the judges, those rescuers in that Old Testament book by the same name called Judges. And so this word Messiah, it's sometimes translated as rescuer or deliverer. These judges, they would come and they would rescue God's people from the consequences of their sin. So in the book of Judges, the people would rebel against God, they would disobey God, and they would suffer consequences for their sin and rebellion. And in the midst of their suffering, their own consequences for their own sin, they'd cry out to God for rescue, and God would send a deliverer, a rescuer, a Messiah. Well, it's fun as you, as you read through the uh, Old Testament, when you get to the book of Isaiah, again, the, the people are slaves now in Babylon, again, because of their disobedience to God, suffering the consequences of their sin. 
They turn away from God. They worship other gods. They trust in military and political power instead of God. They turn to other nations and earthly strength. They mistreat the poor among them for all these reasons and more. They end up as slaves in Babylon, suffering in Babylon the consequences of their sin. And so in Isaiah, God through the prophet, he's talking about rescuing his people. And he says, I'm going I'm to raise up Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus is going to defeat Babylon, and Cyrus is going to send my people back home. Cyrus will rescue God's people. Here's the fun part in Isaiah. Do you know what God calls Cyrus in the book of Isaiah? He calls him my anointed one. In Hebrew, it is my Messiah. You see, part of what it means to call Jesus Messiah is to recognize Jesus is the final and perfect rescuer of God's people. He comes and delivers God's people from the consequences of their sin. You see, like Israel and Babylon, we deserve exile because of our sin and rebellion against God. We deserve, the Bible teaches us, death, eternal death for our sin, eternal darkness, eternal exile. But God sends Jesus to deliver his people from the consequences of their sin. This is why Jesus had to die. He was paying the death that we deserve, the death that we earn through our own sin and rebellion against God. This is Messiah. It's part of what it means that Jesus is Messiah or Christ. He's this long-promised rescuer who will finally and fully deliver his people from the consequences of their sin. Jesus is Messiah. And so when the Apostle John says, I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name, part of that life of Jesus Messiah, part of that life in Jesus the Christ, part of that life is the removal of the consequences that we deserve for our sin. Jesus paid the consequences we deserve. In our everyday life, this means, friend, wherever you're weighed down by your guilt, Wherever you're weighed down by the effects of your sin, the shame of your sin, the consequences of your sin, believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That's the confession of faith we say over the table in the Heidelberg Catechism. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. The Messiah, the Christ, has taken away the consequences of our sin. Jesus is the Christ. Believe and keep believing Jesus is the Christ so you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Christ. But what if I sin again? What if I keep making the same mistakes? What if I keep falling back into the same failures over and over, keep committing the same sins over and over? What then? Go back to the time of the the judges. What if those enemies that God rescued us from, what if they come back? What if Babylon attacks again? You see, we need to be rescued not just from the consequences of sin, but we need to be rescued actually from the sin itself from the enemies of God and His people themselves. We need not just a Messiah, not just a Christ. We need a king. 
And that's part of the witness of the apostles. Jesus is both Christ and King. Let's look now at Jesus as King. You read through the text again, these verses, you'll notice the word king is not used in our passage this morning. But there's another closely related phrase that is. Look again at verse 31. These are written, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and look what comes next, the Son of God. Now, this phrase right there, it's a Jewish phrase that often refers to God's appointed king. So again, for example, in chapter 1, there's a lot of echoes at the end of the book back to the first chapter uh, of this book by the Apostle John. He's wrapping up his book about the life and ministry of Jesus. Go back to Jesus calling those first disciples. Right after Jesus calls Andrew, Andrew goes and gets Peter. In the very next paragraph, John chapter 1, Jesus then calls Philip. And Philip goes and gets Nathanael. And Nathaniel, just like in our text, Nathaniel doubts at first. He doesn't believe the testimony of his brother. That is, until he meets Jesus in person. And when he encounters Jesus, here's what Nathaniel says. He says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Do you hear this close connection Nathaniel makes between Son of God and King of Israel? This close connection, it also comes from the Old Testament, all the way back to Israel's favorite king, King David. Yes, that's the the same boy who killed the giant with the stone. He later becomes king of Israel, and he becomes the, the paradigm, the exemplar of God's chosen king. Well, later in King David's rule, God's speaking to King David, and he says this. He says, I will raise up your descendants... I'll establish his kingdom. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then he says this, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. It's the same thing we read in the Psalms, Psalm 2, for example. It's a song celebrating God's king, and it says this, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The phrase son of God, it refers to God's chosen king. And it was always this picture of a perfect king yet to come, a perfect king who would one day rule the world, provide for God's people, protect them, and even vanquish their enemies, defeat their enemies. In fact, if you were reading in Psalm 2 this morning, the very next verse, the songwriter sings, Ask of me, the Lord says, and I will make the nations your heritage, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a song celebrating God's victory over his enemies and over the enemies of his people through this coming perfect king. What we learn through the life and ministry of Jesus, what we learn from the witness of the apostles, is that the true enemies of God's people are not human enemies. They're not political enemies. They're not military enemies. Rather, the true enemies of God's people are sin and darkness, evil and death. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he defeated those enemies. He defeated sin, darkness, evil, death. And so to call Jesus Son of God, to call Jesus King, it means in part Jesus has defeated our enemies. He's defeated sin itself. He hasn't just taken away the consequences of our sin. He has defeated the power of sin itself. He's released us from sin's power over us. And he's promised one day to come again in full power to finally and fully establish his reign on the earth forever. 
That's the promise of life in verse 31. It's a promise that all those who believe in King Jesus will share in the rule and in that world of King Jesus. We'll share in that world made new and whole and right again. It's a world with no more sin, no more darkness or evil, and no more death. That's the promise of life to those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the true and rightful King. And what we see then here in this verse is these two titles coming together. Jesus deals with the consequences of sin, and He also deals with sin itself, defeating it, destroying its powers over us. In both of these titles, they anticipate the future, the future when Messiah Jesus, Jesus the Christ, will fully and finally remove all consequences and effects of sin from us, from our lives, even from the world itself. It's a future when King Jesus fully and finally destroys all His enemies and ours. No more sin, no more darkness, no more evil, no more death. But until then, we still experience some of the effects of sin and darkness and evil and death, don't we? We still experience some of the presence of sin and darkness and evil and death, even in our own lives, we still hurt. Our hearts still get broken. We hurt each other, don't we? But that's the call to keep believing. That's the call to press on in believing that Jesus is both Christ and King. Since this verse here, verses 30 and 31, it's a summary statement of the Apostle John's whole book, we should expect that it's going to echo different places in the book. We've seen some of that echoing already. And one of those echoes is in the story of Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus dies, and his sister Martha, as we would expect, is, is grieving. She's hurting really bad over her brother's death. And what made it worse is she knows, she knows Jesus could have helped, but Jesus didn't help her, and she's struggling to believe. She's struggling to believe that Jesus is good, struggling to believe this is going to work out in the end, struggling to believe in the midst of her pain. Martha struggles to believe, and yet it's right there in the midst of her pain that she presses in toward believing. If you read that text, it's in John 11, Jesus just straight up asks her, Jesus says to Martha, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's the language of our verse. I'm writing so that you may believe and by believing have life in Jesus' name. And then Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? Here's what she says. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, it's right there in her pain that she presses in to believe. While she's hurting, her brother is dead. Her heart is breaking, and yet she presses in to believe. I believe you are the Christ, and I believe you are the King, the Son of God. Believe and keep believing while we wait for King Jesus to come again. So it's a bit shocking in our text this morning. The disciples are telling Thomas, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But like Martha, Thomas is hurting, his heart is breaking, and he can't believe it. And look what the text says. This is what's shocking. Verse 26, John chapter 20, eight days later, 
eight more days. Thomas is sitting in his pain for a whole nother week. God allows him for a season to just sit in this pain, to endure this heartache and heartbreak. We ask this question, how do you endure when the pain goes on and on and on? How do you believe, how do you keep believing when it hurts so bad and the hurt won't go away? How do you press on through the pain toward belief there? Keep reading verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Look here. And Thomas was with them. And Thomas was with them. Despite the pain, despite the heartache, despite the gnawing doubt, Thomas kept showing up. Thomas kept gathering with the disciples. Thomas kept showing up. Friends, this is how you press into belief. When your heart is hurting, when you're wrestling with doubt, you keep showing up. Keep showing up when you don't feel like it. Keep showing up when it, when it seems like you pray and your prayers just get stuck right there just above your head. Keep showing up when you struggle to pray, when you try to read your Bible and you just can't get anything out of it. Keep showing up when you can't sense the, the Spirit's presence or you can't hear His voice. Keep showing up. Keep reading. Keep praying. Keep gathering with God's people because eventually your faith will grow through that hardship. Eventually, we will see again. We will know again. We will feel again the reality of Jesus as both Christ and King. And when that time of refreshing comes again, you too, just like Thomas, will cry out, my Lord and my God. Because eventually, when we keep believing, when we keep pressing on into believing, even through the pain, even through the heartache, even through seemingly impossible circumstances, eventually we see no one but God himself could rescue us. No one but God himself can make this world better. And it's right there that we see this rescuer, this Christ, this coming king is none other than God himself. Jesus is God. And it's the peak of our text. Thomas wasn't there that first Easter. And the disciples tell him, they, say, they tell him what they saw. They give testimony about Jesus, but, but he struggles to believe. And now it's, it's a week later. By the way, they count. This is likely the following Sunday, that first Sunday after Easter. Here they are again, gathered together, and Jesus shows up in their midst, just like he did a week before. Jesus says, peace be with you, just like he did the week before. Jesus shows his hands and his side, just like he did the week before. And Thomas, overwhelmed by the appearance of Jesus, he cries out, my Lord and my God. And we get here, we see explicitly the point that the Apostle John has been making ever since he began writing this book about Jesus. It's another echo all the way of the beginning, the very first words of this book, all the way back in chapter one. The Apostle John begins this book by saying this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
and we've come full circle. Jesus is God made flesh. God come down to rescue his people. This is the good news of the Bible. God himself saving his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why all the signs. It's why the Apostle John writes about the miracles of Jesus. It's why he writes about that ultimate sign that Jesus rose from the dead and shows himself risen to the apostles. All of this is showing Jesus really is God-made flesh. The apostles write to us about what Jesus said and did so we would know and believe Jesus really is God-made flesh rescuing his people. And that's verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. And notice what's next. In the presence of the disciples. The Apostle John is calling us to believe these eyewitnesses, calling us to believe the written testimony of the apostles, calling us to believe these very words that we hold in our hands. And that's why Jesus pronounces his blessing of verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In other words, blessed are those who believe the testimony of the apostles. Blessed are those who believe the testimony of the apostles because their testimony, by believing their testimony, they will share in this promised life. Blessed are those who have not yet seen but believe. And, and belief here, it's more than just assent, right? It's, it's more than acknowledgement. I love, right, the apostle James, he says, even the demons acknowledge, believe, and shudder. Belief here is not just about acknowledgement. It's about loyalty. It's about allegiance. And it's about a whole life commitment. You see, the Apostle John, he's writing near the end of the first century. Likely, he's writing during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian was the emperor of Rome from 81 to 96. And it's interesting, if you go back and read about Domitian, Domitian, uh, he had a particular title by which he wanted people to call him. I'm going to read it for you. I know it's in Latin, but, but listen for just a moment. Domitian wanted to be called this, Dominus et Deus Noster. Dominus et Deus Noster. In English, that would translate like this, our Lord and God. Domitian wanted to be called our Lord and God. That's the confession of faith in Thomas's mouth about Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's a confession of allegiance and loyalty. It's a confession specifically countering allegiance and loyalty to the Roman ruler and the Roman government. It's a confession of faith through which Thomas here, he's committing himself entirely to Jesus as the highest ruler and authority in his life, committing himself to Jesus as the chief director of his values and his priorities, as the one in whom alone he finds hope and peace, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Jesus is his only comfort in life and in death because Jesus is Christ and Jesus is King and Jesus is God. That's the call to believe in Jesus. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief in Jesus is about committing ourselves to him, committing our hopes 
to him, our dreams, our plans, our futures, our everything committed to Jesus Christ, sworn in allegiance to Jesus alone, sworn in loyalty to Jesus alone, because only in Jesus do we find life, true life, life one day free of the consequences of sin, life one day free even of the presence of sin in our lives and in the world, life with our God in the world, new and whole and right again. That's belief in Jesus. Loyalty to Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Christ, exclusive allegiance to King Jesus alone, total dedication to God-made flesh. Believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. I'm writing so that you may believe in Jesus and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Will you pray with me? Father, in your goodness to us, you were pleased to reveal yourself as we began our worship service by the the prophets of old and then in these last days through your Son, And through your Son, you revealed yourself to the apostles who wrote down what they heard and what they saw so that we might, through them, have faith in Jesus. And so, Father, as we began our service and we say again now, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Would you do that now as we draw near to you at this table? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.